Welcome to Public Power Underground, Northwest public power infotainment that began as awkward force fun time for the power department 43 weeks ago when we altered our work arrangements at the start of an ongoing pandemic. The presenting sponsor of today's show is Plug Pass. Stick around at the end of the episode for a performative demonstration of the innovative Plug Pass switch we've developed to make an outlet a more secure method of electric vehicle public charging. On today's show, we'll get an update on Northwest Power Market on Aaron Reports and its Resource Adequacy Week on Public Power Desktop, where we're joined by special guests to talk about the Power Pools program development, upcoming webinars, and near-term initiatives at ISO. I'm your host, Brian Fawcett. I'm joined by the star of Aaron Reports and co-star of Public Power Underground financial analyst, Aaron Guillory. Good afternoon, Aaron. Afternoon, Fawcett. Already missing a little bit of rain here in Portland. It's a little too blue. But I'm doing well. The weather's too nice. <laughs> nice to me is the rain. Oh. I actually completely subconsciously defaulted to, wow, what a nice day the other day when I was driving and it was just heavily pouring rain. <laughs> That's awesome. You know you've lived in Portland too long or Oregon in general when that is your response to the rain. Yeah. <laughs> our other co-star, Public Power Underground, the coding wizard of R and Python, our resident Genesis apprentices and current power analysts, Ian Bledsoe. Thanks for being here, Ian. Thanks. I really like the GG Plot t-shirt. Let everybody see the GG Plot. There you go. Yep. We're going to talk Game some R today. for a free statistical graphic package. Do they send the t-shirt free with the free statistical graphic package? No, it's actually the IDE, the Integrated Development Environment R Studio, that is selling this shirt on Amazon, which is like, our studio did not develop ggplot, but they need some money, so it's a, it's a free program, so I guess they got to make their money somehow. I always wondered how. All right, lastly, the lead writer of Public Power Underground and manager of the Power Department, Paul Dockery. Hey, Brian. It's, uh, I, I view the lead writing responsibilities in a lot of ways as book reports, like my seven-year-old is currently doing in second grade. And I hope I can do as well as him. <laughs> well, I got faith in you. Okay, you. we're starting this week checking in on power market indicators in the Northwest with our first segment, Aaron Reports. Great, let's do it. This is Aaron Reports, built to take a few minutes to cover Northwest market indicators for January 14th, 2021. I'm Aaron Guillory, and I've got your market update for the week. April, September flows, the Dow's are expected to be 90,066,000 acre feet, a 1949 lift from last week, putting the anomaly at 97%. Midday outflows of the Dow's were 173 compared to 159.6 last Wednesday midday, taking 84 east scaling north to Cooley Dam. Bless you, midday elevation was 1285 and seven feet, similar to last week. The out and outflow took a 22 and seven drop to 128 and six KCFS yesterday midday compared to the last time reported here. Mid-sea power settled at night around $19.40 per megawatt hour. Daylight brought 2179. High 2750, low 10. August power at mid-sea went up a smidge to 6705 this week compared to 6640 the last time reported on public power underground. Henry Hub February futures opened at $2.75 per MMBTU yesterday. And August opened at 2856. Sumus gas in August closed at about 23 and a half cent discount to Henry Hub. Translation, mid-sea August power is priced at a 26,000 heat rate. And bond markets, another 
and another Washington PUD recent, recently also issued two bonds at a total of 38.19 million, a 4% 25-year note with a yield of 210 bips and a taxable borrowing with a 2.974% uh, 21-year term bond at 297.4 bips. Uh, 297.4 bips and 13-year borrowing with average interest rates of 1.71% and yields of 171 bips. The CPC maintained a reported ONI of negative 1.3 for October, November, December, and uh, with most recent SST departures at negative 1.1 for Nino 3.4 index, continues to anticipate a 95% chance La Nina will continue through the duration of winter 2021. Other sources reported a maintained negative 1.06 current index. Spending a beat at Bonneville's balancing authority. Peak load this past week hit 7,800 on January 9th at 9.25 a.m., a 153 climb from last week's peak. Corresponding hydro gen was about 11,800, about a 640 lift with wind gen, uh, while wind gen dropped from the big wave last week by about 2,500 megs to 13 megs for the same interval. And conventional thermal units hit 890 and nuclear gen about 1200 for the same hour since last week's coincident peak. A little change in NOAA's forecast this week, temp in the region has a 33 to 60% chance of being below normal, while precipitation in the region is right on the line and largely a 33 to 40% chance of being below normal in the next uh, six to 10 day outlook, with a shift anticipated to a 33 to 50% chance of being above normal with some areas right in the near normal range in the most recent one month outlook for NOAA. And that's all we've got for this update. Back to you again, Brian. Thanks for the report, Aaron. I'm, I'm mostly, uh, the first thing I noticed was that the weather folks seem to be really hedging their forecasts in, in not only saying that there's a chance of being, uh, you know, less than normal, but, but that chance being like 33 to 60%. And I'm just confused as to what that even actually means. <laughs> it's just, then, yeah, it's a mixed range in different parts of our region. In some areas, they hit more like 40 to 50, 50 to 60. I'm just trying to encapsulate the whole region, but it does seem spread across the board for some of their outlooks. <laughs> I really wanted to blame it on weather forecasters, but that actually makes sense. So. It's a big region, and I, I'm asking Aaron to report on, okay, well, what's it like in Idaho, and what's it like in Seattle? It's a, it's a wide swath there, isn't it? Next up is our weekly walk through Northwest Public Power and Public Power Adjacent News in a segment we like to call Public Power Desktop. Ian, I think we'll start with you this week. What do you have for us? Storms Tuesday night brought power outages across western Washington and northwest Oregon. Reports indicate that more than 50,000 Portland area homes and businesses were without power due to the storms Wednesday morning. PSE reported that it had 210,000 customers without power Wednesday, and Seattle City Light indicated that 74,000 customers were impacted by outages Wednesday morning because of the storm. And a public service announcement when it comes to outages. If you have smart light bulbs in your bedroom and the power goes out in the middle of the night, they will come on at full brightness when the power comes back on. It seems like an algorithm yes. problem, Brian. They should really correct that algorithm. Yeah, we'll talk to LifeX about it. <laughs> Thank you. My kids love power outages. They think it's the coolest thing. We light candles. So when they woke up on Tuesday morning with an outage, they woke up so excited. They're like, oh, let's go light some fires. Thanks, guys. <laughs> well, like it's morning, it's daylight. So is there even a 
noticeable difference between outage and not outage. Have you heard my rant about uh, uh, standard time and daylight savings time? At my house in the morning, when they wake up, it is pitch dark. <laughs> the, the out, it was pitch dark at my house during this outage. You know you'll use any excuse to light all those candles, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> or find <laughs> any excuse for Paul to bring up daylight savings time. <laughs> Did you, were you out in the morning, Ian? I was not out in the morning. And big shout out to Klatskin IPU Operations Department. I don't know if our line crews actually had to go out or if uh, BPA just, you know, kept, kept hitting the switch until the branches burned off the transmission lines. But uh, They, way, they did have to go out. And there were, uh, I believe, employees that had to come in in the middle of the night to answer phones. Wow. So shout out to those folks as well. Yeah. Nice. Yep. Great customer service in Klatskin IPUD service territory. The Northwest Power Pool is continuing its phase 2B detailed design phase along with the public outreach on the importance of resource adequacy for the region and the conceptual design through a series of very cool videos called NWPP presents Ask Jeff featuring Jeff. I feel like Public Power Underground and David Pennington, the lead developer for NWPP, would get along really well. The Power Pool's next public webinar on its resource adequacy program is scheduled for January 29th. To talk more about the, about the Power Pool's program development and regional resource adequacy is friend of the underground and chief energy officer for eWeb, Susan Ackerman. Susan, welcome to Public Power Underground. I'm so delighted to be here, Paul. I love this concept. I'm so glad you're doing it, and I'm happy to be here. Yeah, uh, uh, you're one of the leaders in the region and in the industry. Really appreciate having your perspective. And I, I, you're okay. We're just dive right in. We're going to dive right in. So um, the Northwest Power Pool has done a really good job of going through the program development for a resource adequacy program. I've seen a lot of great presentations, some even by you, around like the strategic value of having a regional program, um, given the capacity squeeze coming up. But I was hoping today we could narrow in the discussion around value propositions for load serving entities like, like eWeb and like Klatsk and IPUD um, within this, this regional program. Uh, do you have a perspective on what, what the value proposition for the program would be for utilities like ours? I do have a perspective. Thank you for asking. Um, I guess, Paul, the first thing I wanted to say is that when someone asks me what is the value proposition for load serving entities to a program that will improve reliability at lower cost than it would be otherwise, I have to ask whether that's a trick question. Because that's wow. really what we're trying to, that's what we're really trying to do here, right, is we, we all have load that we need to serve. We're all trying to serve load at the lowest possible cost. Um, and this is a, like the reserve sharing program that the Northwest Power Pool um, has had for years. This is a sort of thing that results in sharing of, of resources and diversity so that you lower the cost of what you need to do. And right now what we need to do is to lower the cost of reliability. And we can't wait uh, until there's a problem. I mean, California has done that basically. And all of a sudden, Everything that they have wanted to work on as a state with their own grid and God knows they've got enough of their own issues is off the table as they try to piece together a reliable a reliability and resource adequacy program for themselves that actually works. I just don't want us to be in that position. Yes. So if you're looking for 
if you're looking for a dollars and cents cost benefit test, I'm not sure that I have one for you, but I would just encourage everybody out there to think about what the actual counterfactual is of this. I mean, I think a lot of us tend to assume, oh, it's going to be, tomorrow's going to be like it is today, and I don't need to invest this money to do something different because Bonneville will always be there, the hydro system will always be there, and the fact of the matter is we can't guarantee that. We know it's changing. The coal pants are closing, the hydro system is getting derated. I mean, have you seen those charts, right? Year after year, um, Bonnet, the, the federal Columbia River hydro system gets smaller and smaller. Uh, and the, the, the generation we're trying to integrate gets um, more and more different. Uh, and so if you're thinking that you can do a cost benefit analysis of a program like this based on um, the way the world is now or has been for the last 10 years, I would just suggest politely, or maybe not so politely, that's just the wrong counterfactual. Yeah, certainly don't need to be polite with me, that's for sure. Um, the, the one thing I'm struggling with, though, is uh, the things like the reserve sharing program is, is it's a Bonneville balancing area election. Right. And, and as it's being discussed now, it's in some ways a load serving entity obligation and a load serving entities choice about participation in this resource adequacy program. And there's voluntary nature at a different level. Um, and I was wondering, um, as each of us, you know, have to come come to grips with the future development of that program. Is there um, is there are there micro propositions and value streams outside of the macro? Um, or is this largely, a, it, are, is it all of us individually making a strategic decision around a regional uh, acknowledgement of need? Well, I guess my view of it, Paul, is that we are all making uh, decisions around the macro view and our participation in it. Um, <laughs> How do I say this? You know, the, the going back to my point earlier about having the right counterfactual in mind, you know, Bonneville um, does the very best it can to serve its public power customers at the lowest cost that it can. But they, they're looking at a world when, where they're not going to be able to guarantee that what they had available to them in terms of resources will necessarily be adequate or what they need um, to go forward. And so I think what we need to think about is the fact that all of us in public power have an interest in keeping Bonneville healthy and reliable and bounding their costs. And you know, right now the statutes say anyone can ask Bonneville for power in the region, anyone, that's not just public power. You know, it's, it's the investor-owned utilities they can ask too. By having a program like this, it enables Bonneville to bound its obligations and understand its obligations and put a limit on them. And I think that's a very valuable thing for us as public power. I'm not yeah, sure I answered your question, but no, I, ha I hadn't thought around. Uh, I hadn't thought in that perspective yet around bounding in some ways uh, Bonneville's obligation for adequacy in the region. I, I, I think that is a, a very good insight that I hadn't considered yet. And, uh, and it seems like in a lot of ways, we, the framing of the decision and of, uh, of the question for 
entities like ours in some ways should be strategic um, and we should be keeping our high beams up to understand um, on the more macro level. Is that kind of your proposition for, for utilities like ours? It is. I know if you are, if you've got listeners out there who are load following full requirements customers of Bonneville, I think you can safely assume that your existing contracts with EPA and the Northwest Power Act protect you and Bonneville will cover your resource adequacy needs. And so that it shouldn't be an imposition on those public power entities that are load following full requirements customers. It's a different choice for those of us who are partial requirements customers that have maybe a slice block co contract. You know, we're gonna have to figure out what our uh, long-term plan is. And Bonneville does not have an obligation to take care of us under either the statutes or our contracts. Right. And so we're gonna have to think about what, um, what our strategy is going forward. And, and one of the things that this will do, though, is provide some more liquidity in that market, right? Because right now, the capacity market for these products is there aren't that many players in them, and it's not a very liquid, uh, liquidly traded um, product. So even for those of us that are partial requirements, we, we can look at a, a future in this program where finding counterparties for these attributes is easier. Is that a fair assessment? That is my hope and expectation. I know it was one of the uh, reasons why Elliot Mainzer, when he first, he was like one of the early movers of this program because he was looking ahead and seeing how the, the, the vast surpluses we have all assumed and relied on for decades in the hydro system were going away. And what's the next thing for us? And, um, yeah, so, you know, the um, thinking about how we're going to make this work going forward for all of us is going to be important. And I feel like I'm not answering your question, even as we sit here and speak. Oh, yeah. Hey, if somebody asks the wrong question, you don't need to answer it. I mean, come on. That's for, <laughs> I'm very good at asking the wrong question, Susan. But uh, uh, and, and maybe if I come up with a better question, uh, I can have you back on and we can talk some more about this. I find the resource adequacy conversation intriguing. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, it's um, the, the blind spots I have um, that people like you who are more in tune can help fill. So I really do appreciate it and I appreciate you coming on. Well, I appreciate it, Paul. I wish I were more articulate it. I, I really feel like this is one of the most important things this region has tried to do in decades and we're behind the times we need to get this done and done right. Well, there's momentum behind it. So I'm a, I'm a big enthusiast of the program. Yeah. And I share your perspective on the importance. Um, so I'm right there with you. I will, uh, I'll be the cheerleader and uh, follow you uh, in any forum that you, you appear on. Um, and, and lastly, I just wanted to say, uh, you're an early friend of the underground. I really appreciate your support. Um, and I've got a question this week. I'm going to have, I think, three guests on and doing drop-ins like this. I'm going to ask them all. Do you think um, that Public Power Underground should go to podcast beyond just video? <laughs> Paul, I, I'm just so impressed with you and 
thinking about this and creating it, I, I think it's a great communication tool. And I would listen to, I listen to podcasts all the time. That's how I work out. You know, I put the earbuds in and I go out for a walk and I listen to podcasts. I would be delighted to listen yeah. to a podcast, Paul. Thumbs up. I love it. Uh, and um, I, I actually listen to podcasts. I don't watch YouTube at all. Um, so this, but it's way easier actually to upload videos to YouTube than it is to make a podcast. So that's why we started there. Well, I understand why you'd want to make it easier for yourself. It's been an adjustment for all of us this past year, getting used to the various technology platforms and figuring out how to get work done, even though we're not meeting in person. So you can be excused, Paul, if you haven't figured out the precisely right platform yet. I'm just glad you came up with the idea. Thank you very much, Susan, and I will talk to you again soon. Okay, you take care. The Public Power Council issued a press release January 8th indicating it took the unprecedented action of suing the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers of the Corps' decision to suspend power generation at Detroit Dam during high demand hours. PPC states that the change in operation by the Corps was taken without conducting any consultation with impacted parties, nor did it conduct any review of the environmental impacts of its decision. In the press release, PPC expresses that it believes that the best path forward at Detroit, Lam, Detroit Dam rests on the recently enacted federal legislation directing the Corps to study deauthorizing power at Detroit Dam, rather than taking sporadic and unilateral actions that substantially interfere with the project's authorized purposes. For more, you can find the press release on PPC's website at www.ppcpx.org under the Fish and Wildlife tab of the recent news and issues. NewsDat is opening, hosting a webinar later this month to talk about electric resource adequacy in California and the West. Mark Orenshaw, the editor-in-chief of NewsData, agreed to drop into Public Power Underground to talk about what participants should expect from the virtual conference. Hi, Mark. Uh, welcome to Public Power Underground. <laughs> well, well, uh, thank you very much, Paul. I really appreciate being here. I was trying to remember the last time I was underground. I think it was visiting our daughter in Philadelphia in 2019 and riding the local transit system there. So I'm glad to be back underground again with, uh, with you. Yeah, not been riding any subways recently, have we? Yes, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this is uh, meant to be a fun diversion. Um, and I wanted to specifically talk about uh, news data is hosting with CJB Energy Economics, uh, an upcoming webinar on electric resource adequacy in the West in California. And was hoping to get kind of your pitch on what people who would want to participate are expecting or should expect. From that. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Paul. Again, appreciate the opportunity to share uh, just a little bit about that. So, yeah, as you mentioned, um, our webinar is certainly focusing on uh, electric uh, resource adequacy, uh, both in California and the larger West. And we really are trying to take a kind of a regional and longer term uh, perspective on that. I think a lot of your uh, listeners and watchers will be familiar with some of the context for that. We have, uh, you know, coal, nuclear, and some gas plants retiring um, in California in the West, and, and those are the base load dispatchable resources for, for RA in, in many cases, and those are, those are going away in large numbers. We have a lot of new renewables, especially uh, solar in California uh, that are growing, and that's affecting the, the daily loads, uh, resource load resource balance, and, and certainly the RA as well. Um, have a number of efforts going on to um, address resource adequacy, including up here in the Northwest, and 
certainly in California as well, from a kind of a programmatic perspective. And a lot of interest in uh, central markets around the, the West, um, including certainly the EIM is, is notable in that. And, uh, you know, kind of underlying all this is climate change and, you know, more extreme weather events that also are having, um, I think, already seen uh, an effect on, on resource adequacy, including in California uh, last um, August when they had the rolling blackouts. Right. Um, in, in that state that got of a lot of attention. So that's sort of the background and context uh, for what we're, what we're hoping to, um, hoping to accomplish with this webinar. Um, so the, the, yeah. the, these are topics that can get solved in a single webinar or, or, <laughs> or in a silo. So um, it seems like you've got some really good experts that'll come address these areas of interest. Are you trying to kind of cross and, and coordinate between West and California um, and, and revisit these topics after the recent disruptions? Is that? Um... Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Certainly, no, we're not going to solve resource adequacy in one webinar, one uh, you know, one meeting. That that's really not our kind of our intent. Our our intent yeah. is really to kind of take a a longer term perspective on RA issues, um, as you mentioned, both in California and the West. And to some extent, look at how they can be um, addressed potentially on a, on a regional basis. And, and our idea with this webinar, as with all of our events, is to really help people get a better understanding of the topic and help prepare them to, uh, to address it in, in the coming year. So um, you may have seen the agenda. I'll certainly give, uh, give folks a, a URL. Maybe you can, too. But we have um, Elliot Mainzer is our keynoter, um, former Bonville administrator and now head of uh, California ISO. And to your point about um, you know regional um, regional looks, we are having a couple of panels that will be looking at um, opportunities for regional coordination and potential uh, solutions on RA. So yes, we are trying to kind of link what's going on in California with uh, what's going on elsewhere and seeing how that you know there might be opportunities to to work together. Um, we'll have some uh, panels on the RA fundamentals, um, one on the Northwest Power Pools Resource Adequacy Program, which is moving pretty close towards uh, uh, getting uh, getting launched. And we'll have um, some, some panels on um, RA functions and accountabilities in California and also in-state solutions. So um, yeah, to your point, we are looking at um, a lot of California-specific information, but also some, some regional um, outlooks that we think will, will help get people to learn more about RA and be able to apply what they learn in their, in their work, so. Yeah, the RA fundamentals topic really in, intrigues me. I think it's one of the really so, the fundamental questions that we need to be grappling with is that long-term outlook on, on RA fundamentals. Um, and, and it's really, like I mentioned, it's not something that any of us can do in a silo. And it sounds like really the value for somebody like me is in some ways getting a deeper understanding so that as we're talking about policies as a region, we have some fundamental understanding we can bring to the table. Is that a fair takeaway for somebody like me? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, we're not focusing quite as much on, you know, what happened in 2020 and what might happen in 2021 in California. That's a big focus in California. But we're, again, as you, as you kind of alluded to, we're, we're more interested in having people understand better kind of the fundamentals and um, understanding those better and what are the outlooks and, and how we might work together, you know, more regionally. So, yeah, again, it's that sort of longer term perspective that we're hoping to hoping to provide with our speakers. And we do have, I think, you know, not only Elliot, but a lot of other uh, really top um, energy officials from the you know, California and the Northwest that, that will provide a lot of, uh, I think, really solid information for folks to to get. Absolutely. Susan Ackerman, friend of the underground. Is yes. Oh, is she? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's great. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it really does look like a very uh, a good webinar. I really appreciate y'all hosting it and being a forum for some of these um, areas. And I uh, hope the, the, web, the web interface goes well for y'all. <laughs> uh, in a pandemic, we're all learning to cope and, and present information in different ways. So really looking forward to it. I hope uh, I hope Good. this was fun enough. I hope we can you can be a friend of the underground, um, and we can. <laughs> I'd love know. to be a friend of the underground. It's, it's legal, exactly. right? So it's all good. It's all good. Um, <laughs> at some point, we'll get some merch, maybe, uh, and we'll give you a <laughs> coffee you cup. Uh, it'll be great. Uh, thanks great. again, Mark, for coming on. Well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate the appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. It was really great to talk to Mark. Um, and I didn't mention when when uh, he was on that he also included in his voices behind the meter section uh, our email to clearing up about the mirthful energy carols that included Aaron singing along to Old Lang Screen, which is a fabulous and really nice of them to put our note on their website. Muni bond issuance hit a decade high in 2020 as interest rates plummeted and costs and cost concerns rose in the middle of COVID-19 shutdowns. Investor demand has remained strong even amid the low yields and state and local governments have turned to leveraging the marketable flexibility of taxable debt. Issuing these bonds with higher yields for bondholders who can't benefit from interest revenue, federal income tax exemptions, and offering funds that aren't as restricted in use as tax exempt debt for issuers. The Federal Reserve's commitment to low rates suggests this trend of high issuances and maintained investor demand will continue for a more than a short term basis. Friend of the underground, Paul Durham from Benton County PUD sent a note last week asking if we were following cap and trade le legislation in Olympia. So we felt compelled to include a little snippet that it appears Governor Inslee's request bill was filed in the Washington State Legislature under SB 5126 on January 8th. The legislation appears to be consistent with the Climate Commitment Act outlined in his December 2020 policy brief issued by the governor's office. California Independent System Operator, California PUC, and California Energy Commission jointly issued a final root cause analysis on January 13th of the August 2020 heat wave and rotating outages in the state. The report confirms the preliminary reports, finding that the three major factors leading to the August outages were related to extreme weather conditions, resource adequacy and planning processes, and market practices. You can find the report on CAISO's website under recent documents and the joint press release in their news release section. All right, CAISO reshuffled its schedule for stakeholder initiatives this year to prioritize market enhancements for summer 2021 readiness. It hosted back-to-back -back meetings on the initiative on January 12th and 13th. Idaho Power continue, contributed with a presentation on export and load scheduling during the January 12th workshop and PowerX contributed with a presentation on EIM resource efficiency during the January 13th workshop. Joining us to provide his insights from a two-day workshop is PPC's senior policy analyst and returning, returning Public Power Underground special guest correspondent, Mike Lynn. Uh, hi, Mike. Welcome back to Public Power Underground, returning champion, dear friend of the pod. Hello, friend. Uh, Paul, it's so good to be back. How are you doing? I'm good. Is it weird for me to call you friend? I mean, I feel like we've developed a nice rapport. Um, does no, it, no, it feel weird it for you? It doesn't feel weird. It doesn't feel like you're forcing anything. Uh, I'm on board with it. <laughs> okay. No, it, no, definitely doesn't feel like I'm forcing anything. 
I uh, wanted to have you on. Uh, Kaiso held back-to-back -back meetings on the 12th and 13th on the Summer 2021 Readiness Initiative. Um, from their agenda, it looked like they were talking about export and load scheduling priorities on Tuesday, resource sufficiency evaluations on Wednesday. I wasn't able to attend and really was hoping to get some insights, your insights from the meeting. And do you think that Kaiso is addressing the right topics um, under this initiative? Yes, um, good questions. There is a lot on the slate for this market readiness for summer 2021 initiative. Um, you mentioned two of the really big ones yesterday. The, the conversation was really good. It was frank. There was, um, it's a very complicated set of topics. They're both very technically dense. Um, and of course, Kaiso is running up against summer is just around the corner. So it's this really tough balance they're trying to strike at um, putting in policies that can help prevent the blackouts that we saw last year. Um, but at the same time, is it something that they can rush to accomplish and get through a stakeholder process and approve a new tariff uh, by the summer? So I think they've picked a good slate of topics. Um, it was encouraging to see them attack uh, on uh, scarcity pricing, so maybe some light improvements to that. Um, just anything that can address some of the price formation issues we've seen, just because as a balancing authority, they are so dependent on uh, essentially economic import offers from adjacent regions. So I, I think they've picked a good slate of topics. Um, I'm hopeful that they can get something through the stakeholder process and uh, get back to some of the topics that were uh, postponed actually because of this. And it looked like Idaho Power did a presentation on the 12th and PowerX did one on the 13th. Have you seen some good uh, insights provided to Kaiso to help address from external parties? Um, and any insights from those presentations on what Idaho Power or PowerX are thinking? Yes, um, Idaho gave a great presentation, um, essentially kind of highlighting the difference between the transmission provider and the balancing authority and the different roles they have when it comes to curtailing load. And it was, it was a nice kind of um, benchmarking that the CAISO could see to see how these things are handled essentially under the OAT framework. Um, and of course, there's a lot of complications looking at that in an organized market where uh, things aren't necessarily curtailed just on transmission tag priority. It's a little bit more complicated when uh, those energy and transmission and capacity is all blended, but it did uh, introduce some very good discussion about um, essentially who has priorities to resources that aren't contracted under resource adequacy. And um, should Kaiso be curtailing exports to protect their own load if, let's say, the desert southwest is willing to pay more for those resources and pull that energy out of California? So it was a really good presentation from Idaho, um, really good discussion. And of course, uh, PowerX presented, like you said, on the resource sufficiency test, a lot of interesting um, kind of even troubling results that uh, occurred during the August 2020 blackouts where essentially Kaiso looked to be passing the RS test even when they were in stage two uh, energy emergencies and unable to carry balancing reserves, but managing to pass yeah. the resource efficiency test, which Weird, is- Weird, right? Yeah, 
it's, it's a very counterintuitive result, um, especially when the test is supposed to prevent leaning when a, when a region, you know, doesn't have uh, enough resources. So Case, uh, PowerX put out a good presentation highlighting the issues kind of from a principled uh, perspective and actually presented a couple ideas for enhancements going into um, 2021, such as financial penalties for essentially importing when you're failing an RS test, as well as highlighting the need to essentially address the capacity portion of the test, where if you don't have capacity to meet your peak load, um, it should, it's not abundantly clear you should be passing this RS test. Yeah, that makes a, some intuitive sense to me. Um, but as you mentioned, these are incredibly technical topics. Um, really appreciate you coming on and giving us the high level. So thanks for coming back. Um, thanks for being a special guest correspondent. This is your, you're, you're one of two people who've made more than one appearance. The other is Kurt. And Kurt, he wants the underground championship belt um, for the most appearances. I think there's a grudge between you and Kurt coming. Well, I hope you keep uh, inviting me back so I can make sure I keep that belt. Yeah, exactly. And I am, I am really looking for belts. So if you ever find a belt you think would make for a good underground championship belt, uh, let me know and um, we'll, we'll get one because we, we need an actual belt. That sounds amazing. I, I will look. I'm sure I have some, an old WWF uh, belt somewhere or in, in my house or in storage somewhere. I'll see if I can find it. That's a throwback to the WWF. Ed. Thank you very much for coming on, and um, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Good to see you, Paul. Every once in a while, we like to check in on hydro for generation forecasts. Last month, our power analyst, Ian Bledsoe, updated us on the hydro generation forecast outputs from his Genesis run. Ian forecasted December FCRPS generation at 8,175 average megawatts. The actual generation reported by the core for the projects was 7,857. The delta between forecast and actual was a modest 318 average megawatts or about negative 4% forecast error. Now with an updated forecast for January and the remainder of the water year, I'm turning the control of the screen over to Ian, the neural network Bledsoe. January forecast uh, median is 10.422 megawatts for the system, a change of negative 2%. February is at 10.654, which is pretty much exactly the same as last month. Uh, March is at 8,052, which is a 17% decrease in, uh, from last month's forecast. Uh, April is at 6,984, which is a 21% decrease. Uh, going to May, we're at 9,392, which is a 13% decrease. Uh, most of the spill is over by then. So uh, go, moving on to June, it's at 10,810, a 4% decrease. Uh, July is 10,336, which is a 4% increase. Uh, August is at 7,921, another 4% increase. And September is at 5,899, which is a 3% decrease. Uh, we'll bring another update next month so we can see how the January forecast compares to actual. Okay, that's it for the news this week. Send us any news, jobs, questions, or opinions you'd like, like us to share with our 21 subscribers. If you know someone who wants to become a friend of the underground, get a hold of Paul on Twitter at a power manager, which is going to be somewhere on the screen here. 
to add them to the distribution list. If you want to be removed as a friend of the underground, just send Paul an email with the subject line, I am not now, nor have I ever been your friend. That's the subject line, I am not now, nor have I ever been your friend. Paul Dockery to be removed from the distribution list for Friends of the Underground. Thanks for tuning in. Public Power Underground is presented by Plug Pass. Plug Pass is an electric vehicle charging program designed by and for commuters. Today, we have a live demonstration of the Plug Pass switch we invented as part of our effort to make subscription charging more feasible in high traffic parking lots. We're setting up Plug Pass at our local high school to offer the subscription charging to teachers, students, and staff. But having an outlet that's on all day, regardless of a subscribed motorist being present, seemed less than ideal. So we came up with an RFID controlled switch so the electric vehicle motorist that subscribed to the program can turn on and off the outlet with the swipe of a card. It's cheaper than installing level two chargers for the motorist and the utility because my salary for designing the switch is a sunk cost. To learn more about our program, how we price our subscription-based outlet service, or to contribute to our open source design, check out our program on GitHub. Visit github.com and search for pdockery slash plug pass. That's p-d-o-c-k-e-r-y slash plug hyphen pass. Plug pass, it's open source. Plug pass, it's just an outlet. Public Power Underground is a pandemic diversion for entertainment purposes. It's written, edited, and produced by the Power Department. The views expressed here are own, and not the official views of Klotzkine PUD, nor of any person or organization affiliated or doing business with Klotzkine PUD, nor the organization of the guest also appearing on Public Power Underground. Neither Klotzkine PUD nor those appearing on Public Power Underground generate ad revenue from the episodes. It's all just for fun and that sweet, sweet dopamine rush of getting likes. Public Power Underground, hustle ain't subtle. Public Power Underground. It's work to watch.